Okay, we can let the uh, children be dismissed uh, for junior church. And then I'd like all of us, the rest of us, the remainder, to uh, turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading in verse 10 this morning. Genesis 12 and verse 10. We're discussing uh, the life of Abraham, who in the New Testament is on a number of occasions, called the believer. Okay, the believer. Which simply is to say something like this. He, in his life and in his experience, was a prime example throughout the Word of God of a man who believed God and saw unbelievable things happen in his life. He saw God work in miraculous ways. He was severely tested, experienced times of failure. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Abraham could be called the believer. He was a man who trusted God. Last week, I gave you a definition for faith, for what it means to believe God. Faith is trusting and obeying God when I can't see how it all works out. And last week, we looked at the fact that Abraham was called from the Ur of the Chaldees, ultimately to come down to a place that he had never seen called the land of Canaan. And by faith, what did Abraham do? Picked up his family, traversed that thousand-mile journey ultimately, and ended up in a place called the land of promise. He believed God and found God to be faithful. Faith is trusting and obeying God when I can't see how it all works out. Faith is also this. It is trusting in God's promises and in the one who makes them. Okay, faith is trusting in God's promises, but it's more than just saying, I have the promises of God. Promises are meaningless if someone didn't make them to you. Okay? The person that makes the promise is the one who validates, who strengthens, and makes real and possible the promise. We serve a God who has told us He is faithful, that He never fails. Even though all of us know in our own lives what it is to experience times of failure. In fact, as you read throughout the stories of the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, you know what you find? You find incredible stories of faith. You see tremendous pictures of victory that are inspiring. And then you will find seasons of failure that, quite frankly, are depressing. You find the people of God, particularly the men of God, doing the stupidest and dumbest things. And all the leaders are saying, yeah, that's the world we live in. <laughs> okay, But it, 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 it is at times shocking. And when we come into the story that we're going to look at today, we're going to find a man who lived amongst pagans, who was drawn out from among them by God, and still we find that he has some of these pagan tendencies that need to be worked out of his life and out of his thinking. He's a man of faith, but he is not yet perfected in his faith. And as you read through the story of Genesis, you find Adam, great faith in God, failure. You find a man like Noah, tremendous faith in God, 120 years building an ark. And then this colossal, naked failure. And you're like, how could that happen? And you look in the mirror sometimes and you're saying to yourself, how could that happen? How could that happen? Abraham is a man of God, but he's a man who struggles. He responds with deep obedience and faith to the call of God, experiencing great sacrifice, and yet struggles. His name is mentioned over 250 times in Scripture. Why is he there? Well, the book of 2 Corinthians tells us that these stories are written not to make people look good. They're written to reveal the true story of the people of faith. That they are people who along the way experience incredible victories that bring huge smiles to their face. And they are also people who experience times of defeat that cause tears to run down their face. That's the story of what it is to be a follower of God in a broken world. That's what it is to be in this incomplete state. Saved but not yet glorified, not yet perfected. Experiencing a process that we call sanctification, where Ur is being worked out of us, the place that Abraham came from, and the glory of God is being shaped into this man. The lessons that we learn as we 
live our Christian life are something like this. Believers can struggle. Sometimes the bottom can drop out of our lives as we follow God. Sometimes our faith fails. Sometimes our faith is imperfect. Sometimes it's growing through circumstances and struggles. Sometimes it matures. Something else we learn along the way is that present obedience doesn't guarantee future obedience. Success in the present doesn't guarantee success in the future. Because things are going well today doesn't mean that things will be going well tomorrow. Okay? The flat road can turn into a very steep road in the Christian life. Obedience doesn't always lead to an easy life. And Abraham comes out of his homeland, leaves everything except for Lot, which we'll find out later was a mistake on his part. And he comes into the land of promise. But here's the truth that hangs behind this story. God desires to grow his children. And the place where we tend to grow best is not when things are going well. We all know the lethargy and the apathy that can come into our Christian experience. We all tend to get concerned about our spiritual well-being when we face times of trial and struggle. Isn't that the same thing that's true with us when uh, we face physical struggles or we have physical needs? We're gaining a little too much weight. We're eating in unhealthy ways. And then we have a little pain in our chest. And we go to the hospital, and what are we? We're all ears. We're very teachable. And we're very prone to make changes. Okay? God allows Abraham to go into circumstances just like that so that God can make Abraham the man of faith that he has called him to be. God is going to grow Abraham through trials. So verse 10 <clears throat> begins the story. What we'll do is we'll read through the text as we work our way through our discussion this morning. Verse 10, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12. And, and you know, 1 through 9, Abraham has left the Ur of the Chaldees, went to a place called Haran. From Haran, God calls him down to the land of Canaan. A thousand mile journey. He's there in the place of blessing, the place that God called him to. And then you come into verse 10. And I've told you this as you read through Genesis. Every time you read the word now, you're finding there's going to be a shift in theme or in the storyline to the next phase of the story. So verse 10 starts now. There was a famine in the land. Now, this is a fascinating statement. There's a famine in the land. Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Okay, what's happening? Abraham has passed through a season of blessing, left the homeland, came to the land of Palestine. Things are apparently going well. What is he doing in the land of Palestine? Go back and read through verses 6 through 9. He's setting up altars. He's claiming territory for the name of God. Building, if you will, places that we today would call churches. Places where you can come and call on the name of the Lord. He's, he's claiming the promised land that God has given to him. But then what happens? A famine comes into the storyline, if you will. There's a move from abundance and blessing to a season of hunger that is distracting and disturbing for Abraham. It is a season of trial that Abraham is experiencing. He is where God has called him to be. That's clear according to verse 1. Go to the land that I will show you. Verse 4, Abraham left and went to the land of promise, just as God had told him. So everything is according to God's plan. He goes to Palestine. He sets up house there, sets up tents there, lives there. Then a famine comes. And what does Abraham find? Here's what he finds. The promised land is unable to support his family. Okay, that's the, that's the tension that rises in the story. He obeys God, goes to the land of promise. When he gets there, what does he find? After a period of time that we don't know how long it is, a famine strikes and the land of promise that was to be the place of blessing and abundance, ultimately they will reach out to the world, is apparently inadequate. It doesn't look like a place of blessing when there's a famine, particularly in a culture that is agricultural. A famine would be devastating. There is no strong river in Palestine, by and large. If you've ever been there, it is dry. It's arid. The parts that are green and lush today are green and lush because of irrigation that has done, been done by the people that live there. It's a desert place with a small river, Jordan, running through it. That's all there is. What, what, what's really going on here? The circumstance that Abraham is facing is different 
than what he expected. Okay, and what happens in that kind of situation in our life as Christians? Well, it becomes a difficult circumstance that we face on the path of obedience. Okay, so the first lesson that kind of emerges out of these verses is this. Difficult circumstances can, and I believe we can say it this way, will show up as we pursue a path of obedience. Okay, that's what Abraham's finding. Follow God, do exactly what God says, difficulty rises on the screen of his life. The question that is most important here is, why or how will Abraham respond? What do most of us tend to think about our Christian experience? What do most of us tend to think? Here's what we think. God calls me to go from here to here. When I obey him, blessings are ensured. Isn't that what we think? The more I obey God, the more God will bless me. Why? Because we all tend to live with a religious rather than grace-based perspective. Okay? Why did God let this famine come into Abraham's life? What is the famine to be for Abraham? Here's what it is. It's to be a period of testing that is intended to be a classroom in which Abraham will grow. All right, that's its purpose. Now, ultimately, God's going to bring about that purpose in spite of his failure. But the first lesson that I think just needs to sink into our hearts and into our minds is we will face difficult circumstances on the path of obedience. But the famine is seen by Abraham as an obstacle or as an obstruction, as a difficulty, rather than as an opportunity. Okay, same thing is going to happen to Israel as they come up out of Egypt, right? They're going to get to the Red Sea and they're going to say, Moses, did you bring us out here to, is this some kind of a joke? Right? Probably exactly how Abraham feels at this time. He hasn't been able to test God out yet fully and find the strengthening of his faith. And so the difficult circumstance brings about an interesting result. And the interesting result is the second thought in verses 10 to 13. So let's read verses 10 to 13. Or let's pick up in verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt. So they pack up all their bags, goods. His wife, Sarah, who is the woman through whom the promises come. Abraham, the man through whom the promises come. And what do they leave? They leave part of the blessing behind. Why? They can't take it with them. Because part of the promised blessing was the land of Palestine. And that they couldn't take. They had to leave that blessing of God to find self-preservation. Okay, and that's what happens here. Verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt. And this is one of the most disturbing and amazing portions of Scripture. Okay, this, uh, as one writer said, this is not in the comic books, okay, or, or in the uh, Sunday school books for your church, okay? Because it would be very hard to put this into that form. Okay, this is a disturbing account. As they're about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Whenever a man says that to his wife, the wife should be like, okay, where's this going? Where's this going? Famine causes Abraham to take a detour. He goes down to the land of Egypt, left the land of promise. God describes it as a going down. Okay, and I think this is important for us to see. Okay, it's a going down that is going to put his wife in jeopardy. That's where Abraham is headed with this. Okay, they're going down to Egypt. What is Egypt in the Bible? Egypt is a picture of sin. Egypt is a picture of destruction. Egypt is a place of trouble for the people of God. And it is a place of going down. Okay, why does Abraham get down to Egypt? Okay, think about this. Where is Abraham from? He's from a place called the Ur of the Chaldees. You know what runs through the Ur of the Chaldees? The great river Euphrates. Okay, if a famine struck and you had a great river, guess what you had? You had sustenance in the midst of a famine. Guess what ran through the center of Egypt? The Nile River. Okay? Abraham's facing a famine in the land of promise. It appears that God has abandoned him. He creates plans to go to a place where there is a river. Okay? This, this choice on Abraham's part is, if you will, the most logical step. But it is still a step that's going down. It's logical and it is the natural choice. There are going to be two sins that we see in Abraham 
in this portion of Scripture. Two tendencies that I believe all of us have. One is the sin of doubt. One is the sin of distortion or deception. Okay, the sin of doubt and the sin of distortion or deception. The first one we find Abraham committing when he leaves the land of promise. And I think we should say this, okay? I think we should be honest and say, if I was in Abraham's circumstances, what choice would I be likely to make? Okay, most of us aren't familiar with what it is to be starving or famished, okay? For us, the word starvation tends to come up in a context like this. Our child comes home from school. They haven't eaten for probably three hours. They come through the door, and what do they say? I'm, right? And you're like, you have got to be kidding me. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not, you know, it's just so, it's hard for us to get our arms around, our, our, our minds around what it would be like to be in this circumstance that leads to the deception ultimately. But the first sin is what? The first sin is doubt. He doubts the goodness of God. He doubts the provision of God. But we, I think, need to be honest and say there is a sense in which it's understandable. The problem is that his faith is being tested. And when it is tested, he doubts the capacity of God to meet his need in the circumstance. Okay, now can all of us be honest and say that we know what it is to be in that place? That the struggle of Abraham is recorded because it is a normative experience for believers. We need to learn to cultivate a faith in God that is so strong that we find ourselves more regularly defeating the sin of doubt. That underestimates the capacities and power of God that wants to be at work in our lives. So the first sin that emerges is that Abraham fails the faith test. Verse 11, the issue of his wife. He says in verse 12, I know that you are a beautiful woman, that you are very attractive. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Okay, it's a fascinating statement. Okay? What was Egypt like? What were the pharaohs like? Most historians say it was something like this. The the pharaohs, and this is true of many kings in the, in, the, in the Near Eastern ancient world, okay, they had a harem. They had a trophy case of women. Abraham knew that his wife was stunning in her beauty and in her demeanor, in her, in her some, some writers say, in her bearing. Just She carried herself with class and dignity. She was a world-class woman. Abraham knew that they would take note of her, he knew that they would take her, and because of their high regard for marriage, that the king would not want a married woman in his harem, what do you do? You eliminate the man, and you have a single woman who can then be ushered into your harem and make you look good. Okay, Abraham is spot on in his understanding of how things work in Egypt. The sad thing is this, he's the one that made the choice to go there. He's the one that put himself in this circumstance. So he comes up with a plan to protect who? Oh, to protect Sarah. Right? It's all about the beautiful woman. Okay? No. You know what Abraham does? He comes up with a plan that throws his wife down the stairs. In a way, quite frankly, that is despicable. Okay? And he's the man of faith. Okay? So I just, I want you, as you look at this, to say, if Abraham was capable of things like this, then, okay, I need to live carefully. That becomes the thrust of this story at the human level. So what does he say? Verse 13. Notice, notice what he says. He says, and, and, and so plan in Palestine, we're going to go down to Egypt. They're in this journey and along the way in the journey, Abraham says, oh, yeah, and by the way. Okay? And, and the idea is, is that Abraham, this just sprung into Abraham's mind at that moment. No. I, I think it is very likely Abraham thought through his options, thought about what it meant to go down to Egypt and to endure the normalcy of the pharaohs. And he had a plan in his mind. And as they're on their way, he unfolds this plan for his dear wife, who is exceedingly beautiful and carries herself with great dignity and bearing. 
What is his plan? His promise is, his problem is, I know you're attractive. His plan is to protect himself. Say, verse 13, that you are my sister. So that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Okay, now that is an amazing statement. Folks, really, what is this? What is this? If you trade sex for favors, what is it? It's prostitution. Okay, this is, this is not a pretty picture. It's a horrendous picture. And I think it's one of the best arguments for the truthfulness of the Word of God. God did not scrub up the story and put out a, an, an untrue or a half-true story about Abraham. He put the full truth out there. Why? It's recorded for our benefit so that we can learn. So that we can see how we can possibly move from incredible faith to complete failure. If we are not careful, if we don't guard our hearts and keep our eye on God and trusting Him, he prostitutes his wife for the benefit of saving his life and for being treated well. Okay, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. I will be treated well and they will let me live. Okay, that's, that's what he understands. What is the sin? And why such extremes? Okay, I think the sin very clearly is one of simply lying. It's a deceptive plan to cover his own life. And in a sense, what is Abraham saying? Oh, and by the way, your life will be spared too. And that's the implication. It'll spare my life and it'll give me blessing because I will become what? Think about this. Abraham's expecting that if I give you up, what are they going to do? They're going to remunerate. They're going to pay me back. Okay, which is, again, in your heart, what do you think? Incredible. Incredible. He's going to prosper at her expense. He's going to protect and preserve his own life by a sin of deception. What is Abraham practicing here? Abraham is practicing what we could call situational ethics. He finds himself in a circumstance in which there does not appear to be a moral path out of the difficulty, right? That's where he is. There doesn't appear to be a way out of this anticipated problem. And by the way, it is an anticipated problem that is causing him doubt and fear. And since he can't anticipate or predict a moral way out, what does he do? He comes up with an absolutely horrendous and immoral way to deal with the problem. And what is the plan? The plan is to come up with a a deceptive story about his wife. He had a good goal. Okay, now please understand this. What is the goal of Abraham? Preserve the people of promise so that they can go back together to the land of promise. Many writers about this, uh, many commentators on the book of Genesis say something like this. Abraham was anticipating that he would form an engagement pact with someone so that his wife would be planned to be married to them, but it would never happen because they would eventually get their stuff together and get back out of there and go to the land of promise. So it was a temporary risk. And he's not going there to stay there. Verse 10 says he's going there to sojourn, to be there for a little while, and then come out once all the problems are solved. The problem is that one sin of doubt leads to another sin of deception and deep struggle. Situational ethics take over, and God becomes exceedingly small in the storyline at this time. What are the results of this plan? Okay, how does this... twisted way of thinking that doubts God and that is deceptive. How does that kind of planning affect our lives? And I think the best way to answer that question is to say, how does it affect Abraham's life? What are the outcomes of that first small step of disobedience? Okay, I think they are something like this. He is self-reliant. He leans on his own wisdom and creates his own plan. He's captive to a limited perspective with a God who is un. Unbelievable. Okay, that's where Abraham is. And when God is unbelievable, what happens? I take charge of my life. I start drawing my own plans to get things corrected. He is also incredibly selfish. He is also incredibly selfish. He seeks his own well-being, uses his wife as a shield for personal protection, and she becomes a prostitute. That's what he gives her up for. Okay, now I believe that that has never come to fruition or consummation. 
praise God because you're going to find that God intervenes in this story. He is also scheming. What does he do? He drags her into his sin and asks her to lie to protect him with the hidden blessing that you're going to live to. And he also does this, and this I think is one of the sad consequences of sin in the context of married people's lives. He shows total disregard and carelessness in relationship to his marital life. He just it, It's as if he, doing this, he is saying, I, I value my own safety, my own preservation. After all, I am the person of promise. I value that above you. Okay? And folks, let's just be honest and say that many of us do damage to our marriages for personal pleasure, for personal desires, for personal wants. Okay? Abraham is doing, in this context, damage to his marriage. I don't think there's any way that you could look at Abraham and say he was a man who had a great marriage. Okay? In fact, I don't know that I've ever heard someone teach on marriage from the story of Abraham. Why? Because this tends to be an area of struggle for him. Okay? It's an area where he tends to doubt the promises of God. What is his driving concern? Okay, because you've got to boil this down and say, okay, if Abraham is making such bad choices and he is the man of faith, what is the driving force in his life? It's obviously not a big God who can handle any circumstance in his life. That's not what's driving Abraham. What's driving him? At our men's retreat, we talked about idolatry. What's the idol? What's the desire that is determining all the choices that Abraham is making? And I think the, the fundamental idol that is driving the decision-making of Abraham here is personal security. It is wealth, not righteousness. He wants his life to go well, so he is willing to sacrifice all kinds of things to achieve that end, that goal. That has become preeminent and predominant in his mind. He has become an idolater with a driving concern of self. It has taken God's place in his life so strongly that he doubts the promises, the protection, and the power of God. He has thrown God out of his life temporarily here. God is not in the mix. And if you will think back with me, God is not consulted even in the, the departure from the land of Palestine. And when the departure from the land of Palestine happens without faith and without a word from God, what happens? The rest is up for grabs. Okay, he departs from God and in a sense he's on his own. And he's not doing well. Here's to me is what's sad about this story. Everything that Abraham's saying, hey, it's, hey Sarah, you know, if, if you just, you go and, you know, whatever you got to do, you got to do. And I'll be alive and I'll be blessed because I'll be Pharaoh's uh, son-in-law, brother-in-law, whatever you want. I, I, I'll, be, I'll be in a place of blessing. Here's what's sad. Everything that Abraham is bargaining away his marriage for, he already had. He already had it. The blessings of God are what? The promises of God are yes and amen. What is he bargaining for? He's bargaining for what he already has. He has promises from God about his future life. Remember how Alan Peggy Horton said this when they go into China. They feel bulletproof. They feel the protection of God around them. Abraham should be certainly not arrogant and cocky, but he should be confident bold in the power of God, right? He's got a promise that covers the future. You know what that means? Abraham, you need to be there in order for those promises to come to fruition. And guess who else is covered by those promises? The wife that you're prostituting. She's covered too. You don't have to do this. And to me, that's the, the sad part of this pragmatic thinking is that we start doing what, it, what works instead of doing what's right. When the promises of God, the blessings of God, they're already promised to us. And I think as we look at this, we should look and say, look at the messes that we are capable of when we compromise on God's truth. Obedience simply is this. It is to do what's right and leave the results with God. That's what Abraham should have done in this case. He should have stayed in the land of Palestine until he had a clear directive from God. Stay there, Abraham. Trust God. Leave the results in his plan. Trust in the promises that he already, has already cast over your life and live with confidence. And I think what the other thing that kind of emerges here in these sinful tendencies is that steps away from God's plan are always steps down. Okay, when you read verse 10, Abraham goes down to Egypt. Remember the story from Jonah, right? 
Jonah went down to Joppa, down on the ship. You know, he th- just that's when we create our own plan because we dislike God's plan. When we do it out of fear and we enter into deception, what happens? We will experience incredibly difficult circumstances and situations. Now, what has happened? Verse 14 through 16. Just read what this says. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians, and th- this is just amazing, they saw that his wife was very beautiful as a woman. When Pharaoh's, so everyone sees the beauty and bearing of this woman. When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her. You have to have her. Okay, that's the idea. They go and advertise Sarah. There are probably people that were paid. Go find the most beautiful woman and bring them into my harem. That's your job. Okay, uh, build my portfolio, if you will. They saw her, they praised her, and she was taken. He treated Abraham well for her sake because of her. Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. What does it look like? You're thinking to yourself, you got to be kidding me. This guy lies about his wife, concocts a plan like this, and now he's getting blessed. Folks, I want to ask you something. What, how do you think this blessing feels to Abraham? His wife is gone. Okay, yes, he's experiencing blessing because his plan worked. There are many people out there in the world whose evil plans work to get personal gain in their life, sometimes in our own lives. Small plans can accomplish short-term goals that leave you sick at heart. Imagine how Abraham feels. Now, at first, what is he thinking? You know, these men are taking notice of her, and Pharaoh's men are you know, showing an interest in her. They come and probably begin to negotiate with Abraham. And Abraham looks at his wife with a wink, wink, and says, I told you, I knew this would happen. Because sin always feels what at the beginning? It always feels very justifiable. Right? And that Abraham is thinking, I, 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 was, I was dead right. I didn't miss a step of this. They saw her, they came and took her, and they're blessing me. On all three counts, Abraham is absolutely perfect in his prediction but then his wife is taken and and we don't we don't find any description in the text of what happens here but i think the fact that abraham was right in deception probably in some way had to amplify his guilt in this situation he had to realize that the blessing he was receiving then could not be attributed to god it could only be attributed to his sinful plan. That's all he has. So what is it? it? At best, it is a sad success for Abraham. But it is, at some level, a success. His sinful plan to safeguard the promise of God, though, had actually now done what? It had put it in jeopardy. Sarah is in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's harem. How do women get out of Pharaoh's harem? They don't. They don't get out of there. So now we end up with ourselves in an impossible situation where the promise that is to come through Abraham and Sarah together is now in jeopardy because of the sinful doubt and deception of Abraham. And he now is a man who has obviously disregarded the value of his marriage. And I think one of the lessons that emerges through this portion of this text is this. God's way is always best. It is seldom the easiest. God's way is always best. It is seldom the easiest path. It is seldom the path of least resistance. It will test you. It will stretch you. You know what God wants us to do? God wants us to be people that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All these things will be added to you. All these things that God had promised to Abraham, the land, the seed, the blessing from chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. All of those things, they were already yes and amen. And what is Abraham doing? He's bargaining for lesser things. And those lesser things, I I just feel that I can safely say this, those lesser things could not bring the joy of the fulfillment of obedience and trust in God. They just couldn't measure up. And folks, please understand that when we enter into doubt and when we enter into deception and get benefit from it, it never measures up. It always has so much baggage attached to it that it becomes a weighty burden. And what you will find later on is this. 
the blessings of the maidservants, think of the name Hagar later in the book of Genesis, becomes an incredible problem. And truthfully, it's a problem that affects us today in our world. And we'll show you how that works in a couple weeks. Okay? So you get that. what else does he get? He gets all this stuff. And Lot is also blessed in this circumstance. And as you move further in the chapter, what do you find? There's a huge problem between Abraham and Lot. Over what? Over the wealth that they've acquired. Where did they get it? Through deception. Okay? So those, those blessed, it's like, oh, it's working. But yeah, but in a sad sort of way. Verse 17 through 20. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. God has an amazing sense of humor, doesn't he? God has, God has unbelievable resources at his disposal to correct his children. It's not even fair. And what does he do in this situation? The woman has been put at risk. And, and let me address one question that comes to your mind is, how could Sarah go along with the plan? Okay, and I think here's what you have to remember. These were people from a pagan culture who were in the process of growing to trust and love and know God. They've seen him work, but their, their, their life, their background still have certain types of patterns in them that will tend to leak out. And all of us have that in our flesh. Patterns that will tend to leak out, seek to gain control in our lives. Okay, and that's what we have to fight by the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, those old sinful patterns. That's, in a sense, I think what's going on here for Sarah and for Abraham. They're opting out for the old way of thinking. But God, in His grace, intervenes. Verse 17 is fascinating because God inflicted Pharaoh and his household with a serious disease. And here's what's amazing. Pharaoh doesn't need to be told that the cause of this problem is Sarah, therefore Abraham. He does not need to be told that. All right, it is whatever the kind of disease it is, and you can venture your guesses. Whatever it is, it is so clear that it's related to the woman Sarah, that this is the hand of God at work. And so what does Pharaoh do? He immediately calls Abraham. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said, why did you tell me she was your wife? Why did you lie to me? Why did you deceive me? So we find a divine intervention, and then we find God confronting his man through who? Through a pagan. Through Pharaoh. He is now the voice for God to Abraham. Abraham, you deceived me. Who did Abraham ultimately sin against here? Not Pharaoh. He sinned against his wife, yes. But ultimately, who did he sin against? He sinned against God. And God inflicts Pharaoh with the disease so that Abraham will be pulled out of and rescued from this path that is threatening to destroy the promise. See, God is about protecting ultimately his purposes, his promises, and his people. And here he moves in a powerful way to get that done. He confronts his man through Pharaoh. And here's a question I want to ask you. Okay? Am I, are you humble enough to receive rebuke from a flawed or fallen person? From a coworker, From your mate? From your children? From a teenager? Okay, from a coworker, Who is where? Are we open? Because this is key to this story. How will Abraham respond to the rebuke? Okay, will he turn back to God and repent and own his sin? God confronts his man. And then verses 19 to 20. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? And, and I think the implication is something like this. It didn't have to be this way, Abraham. You assumed that I would be like everybody else. But I'm not. Perhaps this Pharaoh was a little bit different in some ways. If you tell me she's married, I would have left her alone. But what is Abraham? He reads his fears into the situation, brings deception into the situation, and brings devastation to his wife and to Pharaoh and his household. And what's happened? Go back to verse 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. Abraham, I'm going to take you into a promised land. I want you to be a blessing. What has Abraham become for Pharaoh? He's become a curse. 
What has he become to his wife? A nightmare. Right? I mean, really, think about it. Abraham, the blesser, the man of faith, what has he done? Well, he hit a circumstance that most of us could understand, and he reacted in an incredibly foolish way. He moved from faith to fear, fear and doubt to deception. And now he's messed up a lot of people's lives. But God graciously, and this is what I hope you can see, God graciously and yet strongly. And I want you to understand this, okay? Please do not take God's intervention here to protect Sarah and Abraham in any way as condoning their sin. Okay? Please don't, don't look at this story and go away thinking, wow, I could get away with a lot. Okay, God is so gracious, therefore, no. Please do not do that with this story. Okay, this is a story about God's intention to ultimately bring through the line of Abraham a Savior who will pay the price for our sin. And he will do everything in his power, which is everything, to secure these people and his promise and his plan for your forgiveness. He will move heaven and earth to be sure that there is a way for every repentant sinner to come back into a right relationship with him. That's what he's doing for Abraham here. He's not condoning his sin by giving miraculous intervention. He is demonstrating amazing grace, pursuing, confronting, correcting, restoring, absolutely undeserved. But he's got his man. Right? He gets Abraham's attention. And what do you learn just real quickly from this? Sin destroys the witness of Abraham. The blesser has become a curse while Abraham is doing his own thing. Sin is killing Abraham's marriage. What is God doing? God is about the business of restoring his marriage. Do you see? Abraham is doing the most foolish things, throwing his marriage down the stairs. God intervenes and says, I'm not going to let that happen. That will not work for me. And he intervenes miraculously to put that marriage back together. Now that, if you want to find a marriage story out of Abraham's life that'll preach, that'll preach. Okay, and it will apply. God does not like it when we mess with our homes. And when we do, he will work to restore by confronting us in our sin. But this is not a pleasant experience for Abraham. This is a confrontive. But it is clearly a demonstration of incredible grace that is reaching out here. And Abraham has to be, can you imagine? He's out enjoying his blessings, his new camels and everything. Oh, he's just, he's managing his world, his new world. But he's got this pit in his stomach. And in the midst of that, hey, Pharaoh wants to talk to you. Galop. <laughs> and he comes in and Pharaoh's sitting there sick as can be. His household is sick and Abraham's thinking, I am dead. Well, you know what, Abraham, in most circumstances, under a pharaoh with that kind of authority and you putting his life in jeopardy like that, you are a dead man. You are. You deserve death. Folks, isn't this amazing? What do I deserve for my sin? The wages of sin is death. What is Abraham going to get here? He's going to get grace. He's going to get undeserved favor from someone who does not owe him. He owes him he owes Pharaoh an explanation. But what is he getting? He's going to receive grace and blessing. What a powerful picture of the gospel this all becomes. Verse 20, then Abraham gave orders about Abraham to his men. And they sent him on his way. He is what? He is deported. Abraham is, is fit to be tied with Abraham. That would be so foolish and put so much at risk. He, you know what he, take, get that man, all of his stuff, get his wife out of my harem, and get him out of here. Okay? What? The one that should be coming and bringing a blessing has been so stubborn and difficult in that setting that Pharaoh can't, he can't wait to get him out of there as quickly as possible. That's what sin will do in our lives. It will destroy. It will wreak havoc. It will affect others. It will kill our marriages. It will destroy our witness. But at the end of the day, often God will intervene with grace. And he will pursue. And you know what? He, what does he want from us? Okay. What's, what's the response that is going to honor God? Look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. We'll just read this quickly. 
So Abraham went up. What is that? That is the exact opposite of what happens in verse 10. What happens in verse 10? Abraham went down to Egypt. And now what is he doing? Abraham went up from Egypt, clearly under the direction of God. You know what's fascinating? This becomes a picture of the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt through pain. Right? They're suffering that precedes the exodus. With Abraham and Pharaoh, suffering precedes the exodus. With Jesus Christ, suffering precedes what? My deliverance from sin. That's how God works. You know why? Because sin has consequences. Those consequences will be meted out. And when they're meted out on Jesus Christ, they no longer fall on me. And what do we experience? We experience deliverance. What does the heart of, of an individual need to be to experience and to enjoy that kind of profound, life-altering deliverance? What, what has to happen? Okay, They have to repent. They have to realize that they were people going down into sin, down into Egypt, who are now leaving sin and going up into the land of promise by the call of God and because of the provision of God. Do you see? How the gospel is wrapped up in this story. And repentance is the, if you will, the key word at the end of the story. Because you're saying to yourself, this guy's really messed up. But he's the man of faith who's mentioned over 250 times throughout the pages of scripture. How does this work? It works because of grace. It is not attributed to Abraham. It's attributed to the God who he serves. Who is calling him and demonstrating incredible pursuing and patient grace. So Abraham went up to, from Egypt to the Negev. That's where the place that he left. He went with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. <clears throat> Both of those things will become ominous in a way. Verse 2, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev, he went up to the place, or he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, which means house of God, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, where God called him to be, and what happens? And it is there that he had first built an altar to the Lord. Now listen, he, he travels all the way back, which is a picture of what? This repentance is full and complete, and when he gets there, what happens? The presence of God, the altar, the church, if you will, the place where God is being exalted in the land of Palestine. It breaks him. And what does he do? He stops depending on himself. And he cries out to the name of the Lord. Okay? So what do you have? You have a story where he leaves, he comes back, and the return is sealed or validated by the fact that at the end of the day, what is he doing? He is crying out to God as a witness to the nations around him. Because Abraham's so great? Nope. Abraham had thrown it down the stairs and deserved death. He was rescued from that by the intervention of God and brought back to the place of blessing. Who should then be praised? Okay, you know who should be praised? Not Abraham. And my purpose in going through this isn't so you go away saying, hey, that Abraham, what an awesome man. You're not going to go away today thinking that. You're going to say, what an awesome God. What awesome grace that would rescue a rebel who had already experienced the goodness of God that should have led him to repentance, but it didn't. He was still deceptive and he was still doubting. It's still fearful. And God pursues him relentlessly and doesn't let his plan destroy the promise of God. And God rescues him. And God graciously brings him back. Abraham's response was repentance. We all struggle with believing the promises of God at times. What do we need to do? We need to repent of that doubt and of that deception. We need to return to our first love. Go back to the place where you got off the path of following God. Go back to the place where you broke covenant with God. And say, God, I need to be right with you. That's what Abraham needed to do. He didn't need to stay in Egypt and sulk about the difficulty of his sin. He needed to get back up and go back to the altar of God and call on the name of the Lord. That was repentance. Return to your first love, and then you will experience this incredible restoration. What does Abraham have? He has a new beginning with the blessing of stuff in his life. But the whole purpose of it is to exalt the goodness and power of God. And here's the thought I leave you with this morning. If God could deliver Abraham. Okay, I don't, I don't think anybody in this room has probably done this stuff. If God 
could deliver Abraham. Okay, if God could deliver Abraham, then he can deliver you. Will you repent? Will we own our sin? Will we own the issue that is present? The doubt, the fear, the deception, whatever it might be. Will we own it? Claim it. Take it to the place of God and turn from it and put it under the blood of Christ. See, Abraham is just simply, in this context, just a great story that God is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. This is a story about the God of Abraham. It's a story in which Abraham changed, but God never changed. Because the God that we serve is bigger than any of our failures. We tend to amplify our failures and just kind of keep ourselves distant from God. God's saying, oh no, oh no, oh no. And he pursues, he intervenes, he gets our attention so that we will see that his grace is greater than our deepest sin. And you know what he does? He takes Abraham from that low place and he takes him up. And he causes him by the power of God to rise. The verse that just, I I wrote this down as I started studying this text this week, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does Abraham fail to do? He fails to trust the Lord. That's simple. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Abraham's plan. Don't do that. In all your ways, look to him. Abraham didn't do that. And he will direct your paths. And when Abraham owned his sin, what did God do? God directed him back to the place of worship with his wife, with the threatened promise secure in the power of his God. Father, as we close this morning, we thank you for this.